A Psalm of David. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend to the hill of Yahweh? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And before you, Lord Jesus, our sacrifice, our risen God, we have heard your holy, infallible, inerrant word. Now let us chew upon it. Let your essence, your eternal glory, your glory manifested through your incarnation and death and resurrection and reigning on David's throne forever. Be felt, rejoiced in, that it fill our souls with hope and awe, confidence, trust this very day and all that may come to us in this life. For you are faithful and you are true. Amen. This is a psalm of King David. It has its own historical context and setting in the 900s BC. But it is also Prophetic. In other words, ultimately, for Yahweh to come through the gates of Jerusalem, the angel Gabriel will say to Mary, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And Yahweh God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. We'll come back to that at the end. Let's go to the text. Sometimes the Psalms give us, in the actual text of Scripture, the setting of the Psalm. When it happened, like Psalm 51, after Nathan comes to David about his sin. And sometimes the Psalms do not give us the context or the setting, so it leaves us to guess. So here are three thought-through guesses that are offered by different scholars. One, maybe this is part of a liturgy for the autumn festival. You can hear, maybe, the liturgical question, answer. Who is this Lord of glory? Answer, people. Yahweh. He is. Maybe. Or it may refer to the time when David his people retrieved the ark of the covenant finally from the Philistines. And then, of course, it went to the guy's house and he got so blessed. David, we got to go get it. And they bring it to Jerusalem, coming through the gates, as we see in 2 Samuel 6. Or, thirdly, and it's very closely, I think, tied to that, it may refer to the times when they would take the ark to battle because the ark of the covenant represented the presence of of Yahweh, and here they come back after battle and victory through the gates of Jerusalem. So, whether we know for sure the setting or not, this psalm is instructive for all of God's people. It tells Israel, and it tells us here today, to always be ready for the king. And therefore, we need to know what kind of a king he is. And so this psalm unfolds that. There are three parts to it. In verses 1 to 2, he tells us the king is huge, massive, big. He's the creator, and he is the owner of everything. And then in verses 3 to 6, he tells us this king is holy. And to approach him, you must be pursuing holiness. And then verses 7 to 10 says, he is almighty, all powerful. So, first, Verses 1 to 2. The earth is Yahweh's 
in the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now the very first word in the Hebrew text in verse 1 is the four letters. The tetragrammaton. That's the personal name of God. If you put vowels in there, it may come out something as Yahweh is my name. Play on I am Moses. I am who I am. That's the first, which means, because that's the way in Hebrew you would show emphasis. That's the way they bold typed stuff. So his point here is the earth, the world, it all belongs to Yahweh. Yahweh, not Baal. No other so-called God. Not Zeus, not the god Ray. All the stuff and all the people in the world who dwell in it are Yahweh's. That's what we're told. You've got to think about the context. That's stunning, David. Really? Yeah. He is saying, the Philistines... The Assyrians, the brutal enemies of Israel in David's time and this very day, they now and always belong to Yahweh. You can say it this way, in World War II, the butchering, genocidal Nazis are Yahweh. They're ultimately subject to the one true God, the creator of all things. Right now, the blatantly evil government regimes of China and Iran are subject to God, along with the demonic, genocidal, Jew-hating terrorist group. Hamas. David's point is God is unlimited. He is not tiny. He's not small. Yahweh is not just the God of that little people over in that little teeny plot of land of Israel. And then these people over here have their God, Baal. He's saying, there's only one who created everything, the whole earth, and all people groups in it are His. And then He tells us why that's true in verse 2. See the word for? Here it comes. For He, Yahweh, has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He built it all, in other words. He laid its foundations, built the land upon the oceans and in the rivers. It's poetry. It's poetic. But the logic is, is simple. Since Yahweh created the world, that's verse 2, therefore, verse 1, it's his possession. 
He's king. He's sovereign over it all. Verses 1 to 2 are telling us we have a universe, particularly here on planet, planet Earth, with human beings who live on it. And it's ultimately stable. It's stable. God didn't just create it and leave it. Literally, it should be translated. He is establishing it. Not merely past tense, but He is in control. He is ever-present. Ultimately, as much as it feels like it at times, it is not a disordered, chaotic rule. We don't live in a universe without rhyme or reason. There is rhyme, there is reason, and yes, it is baffling at times to us. There is only one God, and He is in sovereign control. He is the King. He is the King of glory. And the picture, therefore, of verses 1 to 2 brings to mind what we see in the New Testament when Paul writes in Colossians 1 verse 17 about Jesus of Nazareth. He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. Or Hebrews 1.3, concerning Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Yahweh manifested in the flesh supplies the glue, the, the ultimately in control of all things, glue that holds the universe together. Now, God's sovereignty obviously does not mean that there will be no earthquakes that kill thousands, or tsunamis, hundreds of thousands, or tornadoes, or that there will be no butchering of human beings in wars or murder. Or a drunk person flying down the street and going through an intersection at 90 miles an hour and killing a whole family. It doesn't mean those things won't happen. But ultimately, it means that His promise that He gave after he destroyed all of human, the human beings on earth except eight, he said this, and it will prove true. I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease during this age. 
until Jesus returns and there's a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, there is in the midst of what we do experience is tragedy and chaos and pain joy and blessing and everything else during this present evil age over it all there is a steadiness about life in the world that makes sanity possible he's the one to look to and that calls us to worship and that's the next section where he's saying Come to Him. Approach Yahweh, the God of creation, in verses 3 to 6. Let's start with verse 3. Who shall ascend to the hill of Yahweh? And who shall stand in His holy place? We should pause and not just take it for granted. I go to church all the time. That is a stunning statement. Because the God that he just portrayed in verses 1 to 2, David assumes there are people who can approach him. The God who holds the entire universe in his hands. Now, the hill. Who shall ascend the hill? The hill is referring to Mount Zion, the hill there in Jerusalem where David brought the ark, and that's where it was inside the tent and where sacrifices then would be made. And the point is the ark, as God had said, it represents God's, Yahweh's presence. So he's saying... Yes, the omnipotent one, the omniscient one, the eternal one, without beginning one. He can, if he chooses, in a unique way, decide, my presence uniquely will reside right here. Right here on this little hill, in this back country, on the globe. And after all, this is the same God who later humbled himself and was implanted in the egg of Mary in order to tabernacle with us, in order to sit down and have a meal and a conversation with prostitutes, sinners, the outcast. Who shall approach God's presence? David now asks. And he answers it in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear or make an oath deceitfully. The hill with the ark, that's the holy place. 
And therefore, those who come before His presence must share in that holiness. These words of the psalm are not there in order to push people away from worship. They're there to facilitate proper worship. Coming before Yahweh, the presence of the Lord, with dirty hands and an impure heart, unchecked, is disrespectful. Now, hands, clean hands, the hands, what he's referring to are deeds. He's referring to our actions. He's referring to what we do, to how we live. Clean or innocent hands refers to a pattern of life, of, of walking with the Lord free from unrepentance. You see, that's in there because what's assumed with David and ever since we've been kicked out of the garden and with every Christian, what is assumed is we're sinful still, even though the presence of God dwelt within David and dwells within all who were born again. So what he's saying here is that this here is the opposite of walking down a pathway that describes that's just who you are, a person of ongoing disobedience and unrighteousness. And all of that, notice, it's connected to the heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. The desires. I mean, here's an example. E- even though Cain and Abel, both with their hands, did the deed of sacrificing to Yahweh, Cain's heart was wrong. Abel's heart was pure. It came out of Joyful faith. And then David unpacks this walk more at the end of verse 4. This person is one who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear or make an oath deceitfully. Now, false here, same word. You could, be, you could translate it like it's often translated in the Hebrew and into English, is idol, I-D-O-L. In other words, your soul, he says, your, your life is devoted to Yahweh. It's not divided to Yahweh and Baal or Ray or Zeus or some other god, because they're false, and that's why you get that. Translation in some. And then he says he does not lie. He doesn't deceive. He, he trusts the Lord. So he doesn't make an oath knowing I have zero intention of keeping this. 
promise. I'm just going to deceive. No, his speech is marked by integrity. And so David says, who shall ascend into the presence of the Lord? And he gives the answer. Those with clean hands and a pure heart. Now, why were those words not utterly discouraging to David? Or to any of us in this room who, who know, particularly if you have faith in Jesus, if you love Him, if, in other words, that's the evidence of being born again. If that's you, you more than any peoples on earth are in touch with your own ongoing sinful tendencies. So why was he not just utterly discouraged writing such words? And the answer is because Yahweh, and he knows it, provides what he requires. The Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim on top was what? The place where the substitutionary sacrificial blood was brought to cover sin. That's the rhythm of David's life. That's the rhythm of the lives of all who are born again in the Old Testament. In other words, this whole thing that he lays out here, it, it, it's, it's the ongoing walk, the ongoing way back when you sin to clean hands and a pure heart and right affections and truthful speech. It's all sitting upon the mercy seat of atonement. Which, of course, all pointed to the one actual death, blood shed payment that could actually take away sins. Jesus. And so, the pattern that David had, all believers in the old covenant era had, it's the same pattern. For us Christians, the New Testament lays out this pattern this way in 1 John 1. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Who shall stand in His holy place? There it is. We'll have fellowship with one another, God and us. And the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Clean hands. From all unrighteousness. So, if you trust 
If you trust in the Lord Jesus, don't ever let the words of this psalm cause you to turn away from coming into the presence of God. Don't, don't let these words, who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Don't allow them to turn you away. The way they, they work in the Christian life is that you allow these words to work conviction again in you and bring you to repentance where you may need to repent and ask for forgiveness where you need that, like 1 John 1, 9, and thus be restored. In other words, you allow them to convict you, uh, say that hatred in your heart toward a, a brother or a sister in Jesus is, is just there and it's growing and you know it and you hear those words who comes to his presence you let it convict you and you just turn and you say Lord forgive me and Lord I'm desperate help change my heart or you allow those words to prick your conscience about your stealing the Lord's money when you hold it back because you can't trust in him. Or you, you, you let it convict you when you give in to the lust of the flesh. And you turn to 1 John 1.9. The conviction brings turning. Turning to bank everything day in and day out on Christ's blood. And to turn to obey the Lord. Why? For your own good. For the joy that He gives. That's what faith is. So get the flow of this psalm. As verse 4 convicts us, it, it, it leads us to a, to a change of desire, heart, and actions, and then into verse 5. He will receive blessing from Yahweh, and he'll receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is not our righteousness. It says it very clearly. It's God's righteousness. As a gift, as Paul would put it in the New Testament. Abraham experienced it. David experienced it. Only because Christ was to come. And He has come. And it is His righteousness that is granted. This is God's righteousness that we receive. It's our ongoing vindication from, notice the text, our saving God. It's all right there. Saving us from our actual guilt and sin unto blessing from Yahweh. It all comes by faith to Abraham, to David, or to any of us who hear that God has finally come. 
He is Jesus. He has died. He's risen from the dead. This is what everything is all about. It is the truth. Believe. That's what faith is. You believe those promises that are banked on a historical event. It comes by faith. Because what is faith at its core? Faith is looking to God through Christ as the desired treasure. Nothing's better. That's what verse 6 says. The next verse. It just says it differently than that, but that's what it says. Such is the generation of those who seek Him. Who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The flow is this. Those who are those people, who shall come into His presence, those with clean hands and a pure heart. Who are they? They are these people. Why do they have clean hands and a pure heart? Because they are, verse 6. They seek Him. That's why Jesus stood one day and says, All you are heavy laden, burdened. Come to me. Come to me. Seek me out. For my burden is easy. Oh, you're going to love it when you do. Seek Him. The flow is all who have those clean hands and pure heart. Such a generation as that are those who seek Yahweh. Now just for a moment, actually the, the Hebrew text doesn't say the God of Jacob. It's not there. What it says is, those who seek, looking for you, your face, presence, your face, and then the word Jacob. That's what it is. So this, this is what I think pretty strongly he, he means. This is the people who seek Him, who, who seek your face like Jacob did. Which would then point us to Genesis chapter 32 where Jacob, remember the vision and wrestling all night with that man, God, right? And Jacob said, For I have seen God, face to face. And yet, my life has been delivered. He didn't kill me. And that was said by Jacob right after a few verses earlier. Let me go. We've been wrestling all night, Jacob. And his response was, no. 
I will not let you go unless you bless me. He was a seeker. And we know Yahweh has come. His name is Jesus. He shed his blood so that all who belong to him may be bold, may be desperate to seek his face. And Yahweh's coming then is pictured in verses 7 to 10. Now, my guess is that the original setting is, is I think it's, it's either the, the, the ark coming back from the Philistines or the ark coming back from battle. Either way, because the ark was taken to battle because it represented the presence of, of Yahweh whom they wanted with them. And there's victory. And so the presence of Yahweh is signified by the ark, the box of the covenant with the Ten Commandments in it that would go inside the Holy of Holies. And so just picture it. Here it comes as the people gather outside the gate. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. And lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. So the all-powerful God who is holy and has, oh, He owns everything. He is in kingly that is, sovereign control over the whole world. And he says, he is the king of glory. This is a pointer. This is a type. It's a shadow of what was to come. Yahweh's first coming. Christmas. Picture this. God, who is spirit. He is immaterial. He is uncreated. He is without beginning. He is not a man. He is not human. The divine nature. He is, I am, our Yahweh. First you see Him here in the text. He enters the gates of Jerusalem signified by the box, the ark. A thousand years later, the angel Gabriel delivers the message to a virgin. Yahweh will use your body to create an ark, a tabernacle for God the Son to dwell in and become fully human. And then, 35 to 37 years 
later, that son sat upon a donkey riding up to the gates of Jerusalem. As Luke tells us, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. And they were saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of Yahweh. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. God the Son has become a human being. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Pause. You got wars? You got a battle against your sinful nature and your flesh? You got battles to trust in God's promises in dark times? Jesus is mighty in battle. Are you his sheep? He is one heck of a hombre shepherd. No one will snatch them out of his hands. Lift up your gates, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh. Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. Christmas is Jesus' first coming. And He entered those gates of Jerusalem on His way to the cross. But having been raised from the dead and exalted, and seated at the right hand of the Father, there is a second advent coming. And it's pictured this way in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. He has been highly exalted. And the Father has bestowed upon Mary's son the name that is above every name so that every 
tongue will confess that Jesus, the Messiah, is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. He is the King of glory. Let us stand and worship our great, saving, merciful, risen, and exalted King Jesus. And as we do, we will be passing out the communion elements. So all here who have been baptized and you believe in the gospel of our Lord Jesus, feel free to partake. And we will partake of it, though, pray over it together.